All right, everyone, welcome to the Toasty Kettle Podcast. My name is James, I'm your host, and today is episode 23. So before we dive in and get started, I want to take a minute and wish everyone a happy new year. I'm super excited for 2020 and all the exciting content I'm going to put out for everyone. Uh, My whole goal for this year is to be uh, a lot more consistent with the podcast to make sure that you're getting the quality content that you like to listen to. And I'm super appreciative for all of you that have subscribed to the show, for all of you who have left reviews. And if you haven't left a review yet, make sure you go wherever you listen to the podcast, whatever your podcatcher is in iTunes or Spotify, uh, wherever you get the podcast, Google Play, make sure you leave a five-star review if you like the show. It's really going to help drive more people to the show and help us grow the audience here at Toasty Kettle. So with that out of the way, today's episode is all about who is Fanny Farmer and what were her contributions to food science. Now, I'm going to continue that theme of food science for a couple more episodes And uh, if you haven't had a chance to listen, make sure you go back and listen to the episode about William A. Mitchell, who kind of kicked off this whole idea, this whole uh, food science chain of of episodes. And he was just a powerhouse of a scientist that had uh, a couple, you know, minor products. Maybe you've heard of them. Uh, Cool Whip, Tang, Pop Rocks. So... Uh, yeah, he definitely knew his way around a food science laboratory. So make sure you check that episode out if you haven't yet. Now, if I were to ask you who is Fanny Farmer, there's a good chance you would have no idea. And, and that's normal. That's why you're listening to the podcast, right? So I can tell you all about who is Fanny Farmer. Now, most people aren't going to dive that deep into food history, Um, But I feel like you can't talk about food science without referencing Fanny and her contributions to the culinary world. Now, any scientist will tell you that the key to a great experiment is being able to reproduce your results. If you have a tremendous scientific finding, then the scientific community isn't going to give a hoot or pay any attention to you unless you can prove that you can replicate and reproduce those results then you might have something there. Then people are going to pay attention. Now, we all have that family member that's an amazing cook. And growing up, my parents, grandparents, all of them cooked amazing food. And I absolutely loved it. However, when I grew up and moved away, I had a hard time reproducing the results of making these classic dishes that I grew up with. You know, I'd, I'd crave some nostalgia. I'd, I'd crave some of those classic meals that mom would make growing up or that grandma would make. And I would call them, I'd get the recipe, and, and then I would try to execute that. And I was always light years away from what the end result, what I desired to be the end result. Now, going along with that, I remember making my grandma's biscuit recipe a year ago, about a year ago, and I was super excited. Now, my grandma's from Kentucky, and she knows how to make fantastic biscuits. Finally, I had her recipes, 
and I was finally going to be cranking out Kentucky biscuits by nightfall. My thoughts of fame and fortune came crashing down so quickly when I sent my grandma a picture of the final product. Her response was, those don't look like my biscuits. Now, I I know she didn't mean to be sassy or anything like that in her response, but it, it got me thinking, why don't my biscuits look like her biscuits? I followed her recipe. I've made biscuits before. The process isn't foreign to me. Uh, so <laughs> as the air quickly deflated from my ego, I thought about what could have gone wrong. You know, ultimately, my end result was a little bit of a disappointment. They tasted good, but they just, they weren't that light, fluffy biscuit that I was shooting for. Now, this is a prime example of how my grandma never used her recipe. She had the recipe written down, but there are probably five things that she would do during the course of making those biscuits that she didn't even consider to write down. And that's how cooking and cookbooks used to be. Now, I've read through so many vintage cookbooks over the past two years, uh, so many. And when you go way back, they really didn't have standardized measurements or uh, modern equipment. And, you know, that made replicating those recipes very difficult. One thing that always left me guessing was what are the exact amounts and proportions that I should be adding to these different recipes? Because they didn't have those standardized measurements, I felt like people would just add whatever felt right, and then they were shocked when their neighbor couldn't replicate their recipe. Now, Fanny Farmer realized this was a major problem with cooking. Without consistent and universal measurements, the average cook would never be able to reproduce a master's recipe. Now, think about that for a second. Think about that. How many times... Do you watch someone cook a recipe they made themselves? You know, I do this all the time when I make uh, chicken soup or really any soup. I, I have a basic idea of what flavor I'm shooting for, and I'll throw a little bit of this, a little bit of that, whatever's lying around, whatever vegetables I need to use up. That's the miracle of soup. It's, it's a pot full of whatever's hanging around. Now, with my chicken soup, it's always going to vary slightly from time to time because I've never bothered to write down the recipe and assign the strict measurements to what I'm adding in. Now, the result is a soup that's amazing, but it's difficult to replicate. It might be almost impossible for someone else to replicate my mental recipe. I would tell them to add a little of this and some more of that, and in the end, they might be in the ballpark, but they might be miles away from from what I might produce. And Fanny Farmer is known to have said... Correct measurements are absolutely necessary to ensure the best results. Good judgment with experience has taught some to measure by sight, but the majority need definite guides. Now this fits right in with what I'm trying to say with this biscuit story from my grandma. You know, she told me many times about how she'd watch her grandma and her mom make the biscuits. And it became more of a sixth sense than an actual recipe. She could tell just by the feel of the dough what needed to happen next. And that is the problem. That is going to be impossible to replicate time and time again. 
because there are so many of those little details that are going to go on behind the scenes that she's going to do without even thinking about it, and they're going to be missed entirely. Now, great recipes work really well when they're developed with measurements in mind, not when someone tries to retroactively assign measures to a recipe that they have lodged in their mind. Now, if you haven't guessed by now, Fanny Farmer's big contribution to food science was just that, a more scientific approach to cooking. You know, she didn't have a fancy science degree from a big institution, and life threw her some curveballs that made higher education unattainable. However, she valued the scientific method, and she knew you need to be able, needed to be able to reproduce results, and you could only do that with unified measurements. You know, cooks across the globe needed to be able to look at a recipe and be able to replicate it. So who is Fanny Farmer? Fanny Farmer was born on March 23rd in Boston, Massachusetts, good old Boston, in 1857. She was the oldest of four girls and was born into a family that greatly valued education. Now, here's one of those curveballs that I was talking about. When she was 16, she suffered a paralytic stroke that required serious rehabilitation at home. She was basically left uh, to be cared for by her parents. And in a way, in an effort to help out, they had started to take on some boarders, and she was able to start cooking for them during that time. This is where she really started to develop a love for food and a deep love for cooking. When she was 30, Fanny enrolled in the Boston Cooking School. She loved the curriculum and fully embraced the entire experience. Now, part of that curriculum was food science and nutrition. After graduating, she loved it so much, she stayed on as an assistant to the school's director, and she ultimately became the principal. Now, she went on after that to to found her own uh, culinary school. And however, the biggest contribution, again, that she made to the culinary world was the universal measuring of spoons and cups. And this allowed for accurate and consistent results in her cooking. And she emphasized level measurements so often throughout her cookbook that she was given the name the mother of level measurements. So think about that, you know, in how it used to be with vintage cooking. And, and this is something that I saw time and time again. Any, if anyone were to pick up a vintage cookbook, and I've done that a few times, you're going to see a teacup of flour, a bit of butter the size of an egg. And these are all very subjective measures. You know, my teacup might be bigger than your teacup. And maybe my chicken lays small eggs. So, you know, you're going to have really quick, you're going to run into some wide variations on what the final recipe should be. So she had a standard measurement for cups, tablespoons, teaspoons, and what those cups should be able to hold. And then she was able to uh, use those measures in all of her recipes throughout her cookbook. And she also did extensive work in diet and nutrition for those who were sick. And she even trained doctors and nurses in the subject and guest lectured at Harvard Medical School. She placed such a tremendous value on appearance, taste, and presentation of sick room food 
and which this is wildly innovative for the time. Believe it or not, people that were recovering from illness were fed really lousy food. Uh, most of the cookbooks that I'm referencing here, the vintage cookbooks, they all talk about uh, convalescent cooking, and that's cooking for people recovering from illness. And the recipes are terrible. They're very bland. They're very, you know, a lot of uh, porridge type things, a lot of soft foods that they believed were easier to digest and uh, just really terrible experience. And um, she wanted to, to change that. She took that subject so seriously that she herself thought that she would be known for her contributions in that area of the culinary world instead of, you know, cooking around the house and cooking for households. Now, she had a very wildly successful cookbook. Um, no other book at the time, and still very few today, went as deep into the science of food and the methodology for cooking. And her consistent measurements made it super easy for the average cook to know exactly what amounts to put in and reproduce her recipes. And, uh, and, and that is truly, you know, truly amazing. And the cookbook is really fantastic. A lot of fun things to read in there, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. Now, eventually, um, you know, Fanny's health wasn't the greatest. It started to catch up to her. She ended up living the last seven years of her life in a wheelchair. Now, during that time... She was still very active, designing recipes and lecturing, and her last lecture happened 10 days before her death. She died in 1915 and was 57 years old. So that, in a nutshell, is Fanny Farmer. And if you read her cookbooks, you know she took science and measurements seriously, and she had tremendous passion for food. And it's incredible that she was able to produce such an extensive and well-researched cookbook. The publisher thought it was going to fail. When she first went to launch that cookbook, they only ordered 3,000 copies. And, uh, and it was at the author's expense. So she had to self-fund the publishing. And it sold like hotcakes. I mean, they were gone. They couldn't keep enough on the shelves. People loved it. People fell in love with this approach to cooking. It was so innovative at the time. You know, we had food science and we had measures, but no one was blending that all together like Fanny Farmer was. And that's why her cookbook still to this day is a very popular cookbook. So now I want to dive a little bit more into that cookbook, because, again, when we're talking about turn of the century and you know, late 1800s, early 1900s, there's just a lot of really great attitudes and mindsets that uh, can be picked up. And uh, so I'm going to read just some excerpts from this cookbook. And this cookbook is like almost 800 pages. I mean, it's a massive cookbook. So obviously there's a ton more in here. And I'm not even going to touch any of the recipes, uh, though there was an interesting one I was looking at last night for an orange fritter. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, they're going to make a batter and put some orange zest and maybe some orange juice into it and make an orange-flavored batter and then fry that up like kind of like an orange-flavored hush puppy. No. <laughs> so in this recipe, you take a section of an orange that you've removed the seeds and you dip it in a fritter batter and then you fry it. And that sounds just absolutely crazy to me. I'm probably going to have to give it a try here and uh, post it on the blog. So 
when talking about different diets, Fanny had this to say in her book. To keep in health and do the best mental and physical work, authorities agree that a mixed diet is suited for temperate climates. Although sound arguments appear from the vegetarian, women, even though they do the same amount of work as men, as a rule, require less food. Brain workers should take their protein in a form easily digested. In consideration of this fact, fish and eggs form desirable substitutes for meat. The working man needs quantity as well as quality that the stomach may have something to act upon. Corned beef, cabbage, brown bread, and pastry will not overtax his digestion. In old age, the digestive organs lessen in activity, and diet should be almost as simple as that of a child. Increasing the amount of carbohydrates and decreasing the amount of proteins and fat. Now, I mean, you think about that, it makes sense. If I'm going to go do hard manual labor, I need a hearty meal to get me through the day. And uh, that's just kind of along those lines that she was thinking. Regarding starch, which Fanny defined as cereals and potatoes, she said, being a force producer and heat giver, it forms one of the most important foods. Alone, it can't sustain life, but must be taken in combination with foods which build and repair tissues. On cooking, she wrote, cookery is the art of preparing food for the nourishment of the body. Prehistoric man may have lived on uncooked foods, but there are no savage races today who do not practice cookery in some way, however crude. Progress in civilization has been accompanied by progress in cookery. Food is cooked to help develop new flavors and make it more palatable and digestible. And I just really love that take. I, I love how, you know, that's really the essence of cooking. We, we blend new ingredients together, come up with new flavors. New dishes are always being made all the time and refinements are being made to old ones, and that's just, that's what makes cooking so enjoyable. There's so many ways you can customize a few simple ingredients. She had interesting insights in the differences between baking and roasting, and, you know, when I'm thinking of baking and roasting, I think they both happen in an oven. No, for her, baking is cooking in a range oven, and roasting is cooking before a clear fire with a reflector to concentrate the heat. Meat is placed on a spit, and allowed to revolve. So, you know, for me, this sounds like a rotisserie, the way she's describing it. And uh, so next time you talk about roasted veggies, unless you put those on a spit and did it rotisserie style, you bake the veggies, you didn't roast the veggies. Now, so many great tidbits in this cookbook. I just brushed the surface, but it's absolutely worth checking out. There are free versions out there because it's so old. Uh, anyone should be able to access it. Just do a quick Google search and, and you can find it. They're also still in print. You, you can probably buy one if, if you love vintage and, uh, and old cooking recipes. So that's all I have for my discussion today on Fanny Farmer. Uh, if you like what you heard, again, make sure you leave a five-star review wherever you're listening to your podcast, to this podcast. And that's really going to help people find the show. If you want to know more about Fanny Farmer, or you want some of those recipes, or you need help finding the cookbook, you can find me on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, at Toasty Kettle. And uh, you can also just comment right on the article itself at ToastyKettle.com. And I'd love to hear from you. So if you have questions, comments, concerns, reach out. I'll answer those for you. 
until next week.